You're listening to The Catholic Podcast. Happy Easter from the two of us here at The Catholic Podcast. We hope that you like the new intro. Uh, so today's a very special Easter episode, How to Proclaim the Resurrection. I think we don't often think about this when we talk about Christ. We'll talk about uh, his teaching. We'll talk about his claim to be divine, etc. But St. Paul is actually very clear that the proclamation of the resurrection is really central uh, to the proclamation of the gospel. This is something that, uh, for some reason, we don't talk about as much as I think we could. So here's how he describes it in 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brethren, in what terms I preached to you the gospel, which you received and which you stand, by which you are saved if you hold it fast, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. And then it goes on from there. But the point I want to draw is, is twofold. Number one, the saving gospel that Paul proclaims, uh, the one that he describes as of first importance, includes within it a proclamation of the resurrection. And number two, he talks about this as what he's received and what's in accordance with the scripture. So this isn't just Paul's preferred way of delivering the message of the gospel. He's saying like, no, there's a reason scripture tells us that these things are going to happen and that Christ's resurrection from the dead is something contained within scripture. We'll get a little more into the Old Testament and its bearing on the resurrection. But at the very least, right now, just recognize like scripture foretells the resurrection. This points to its centrality uh, in the proclamation of the gospel for doing it correctly. Now, Paul goes on a little later in this chapter, and he shows some of the implications for why it matters. Like, why is it so important that we proclaim the resurrection? He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified of God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised and Christ has not been raised, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all men most to be pitied. He's staking the entire credibility of the gospel and his eternal life and yours and that of all Christians on the fact that the resurrection is true. Because if it isn't true, your sins aren't forgiven, you're not saved, and you're not going to heaven. And it's pathetic that we're living a, a totally fake, phony life if the resurrection isn't true. So I guess, needless to say, Getting the resurrection right, being able to preach it convincingly, to be able to uh, believe it devoutly, is of utmost importance. I want to make what I think might be a bit of a grisly analogy here. I think I've mentioned in a previous episode that I can be a little bit of a, a true crime junkie. And, you know, just suspense and mystery and like trying to solve crimes. There's an analogy here to the faith. So think about it like... If you're a detective and you're investigating a murder, well, the deductive approach would go something like this. First, you need to establish that Mr. Jones is, in fact, dead. He's not just missing. He hasn't just, 
gone on vacation and not told anyone. You got to sort of establish a crime scene. So you need to determine next that he died of unnatural causes. You need to determine that it was murder. At this point, you might look for a motive. You might figure out, well, who had access, who was, you know, missing without an alibi at this time. You're going to search for clues. Eventually, hopefully, you come to a conclusion. All of that's very logical. It's very orderly. It's a nice deductive approach to solving the crime. Uh, one of the problems of this approach, though, is that it often can't get past a certain level of probability. So you can show, for example, that Mr. Smith had the means and maybe even the desire to kill Mr. Jones. But it's not always an easy case to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt or beyond a reasonable doubt that it really was him. Well, let's consider a second, like a twist on this scenario. This is more inductive. In this case, Jones goes missing. He's feared dead. Well, a guilt-stricken Mr. Smith comes into your office and says, I did it. I shot Mr. Jones. Well, this, of course, lets you leapfrog past a lot of the deductive approach that we just described. You don't have to say, well, where's Mr. Jones? Did he die? Was it unnatural death? Because you're being basically given all of those details. Now, does the evidence still matter? Of course it does. Any detective worth the salt is going to want to corroborate what's being confessed and what we know about the case. So, you know, you might ask where the body is, or you might, you know, see if he has any details that weren't known to the public, anything like that that would really confirm that this really is uh, a true confession. So it actually opens up new vistas for evidence. You might be able to see things you wouldn't have been able to see uh, by your reason alone. There are a great many of these actual cases where a person uh, is believed to have died of natural causes and later someone comes forward and confesses to killing them. Or they're arrested for some other crime, they re-examine the case, and suddenly they realize in light of this new evidence that, oh, it wasn't actually you know, natural causes afterward. Okay, why bring up such a grisly analogy? Because I think a lot of times when we think about the proclamation of the faith, if you're thinking about, how do I proclaim the faith to someone who doesn't believe in God? Our default switch, for most of us, I think, is a deductive one. We want to say, okay, well, number one, you need to know that there's a God. Here are all these proofs from creation, from reason, etc. Number two, uh, this is a personal God. Here are all the reasons why we know God isn't just a force, but he's actually a person. Number three, uh, this God really wants to have a relationship with us. He wants to reveal himself to us and invite us into relationship with him. This is where we get things like the argument for desire, that we wouldn't have these longings for relationship with God if they weren't given to us by God. He wouldn't have given us those desires if he didn't want relationship with us, etc. Number four, God reveals himself through the Jewish prophets. Number five, the culmination of that revelation is in Jesus Christ, his only son. I like that approach. I think that deductive approach is good. It's logical. It's airtight as far as it goes. At any point along the process, though, someone might say, I don't know, I'm not convinced, I don't buy it, or I see the logic but maybe there's some argument that we haven't thought of, and so I'm going to hedge my bet and say I don't know for sure. And so at each level, 
there's a little entry of doubt. Like, well, this seems good, but how can I know for sure? This seems like a good argument, but maybe we're missing something or... Or I don't see the uh, I don't see the logical coherence. I don't see why creation requires a creator, etc. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the equivalent of the guilt-stricken murderer in the grisly analogy. Because if Christ is raised from the dead after declaring himself divine, then the only conclusion, the only coherent conclusion is that he is in fact God, that you just can't get around the fact that it would be awfully coincidental if the one time someone just rose from the dead on their own, happened to be someone who claimed to be God, happened to have predicted that this was going to happen to him. That is an awfully big coincidence for a never-before-heard-of uh, event in human history. So, of course, the logical conclusion is, if Jesus rose from the dead then he's God. Well, that logically entails all of the things we were going to try to prove beforehand. Because if that's true, then we know that the scriptures that Jesus talks about as scripture are the inspired scripture. Uh, we know that he is God, that so there must be a God, must be a personal God, must be a God who wants relationship with us. So all of those things we were trying to piece by piece sort of establish, you get all of those in one, one foul swoop if the resurrection is true. So you can see, I, I think, why the proclamation of the resurrection is so important. So that was the first thing I wanted to talk about. The second was basically, how do we proclaim the resurrection? And here I think it's worth uh, looking at John 20. So I should tell you at the outset that I'm stealing the idea of this from a 2011 Easter homily that I heard um, in St. Mary's Church in Alexandria, Virginia, by a priest named Father Mick Kelly. It was actually his very first Easter homily as a priest. And it's fantastic. So the gospel is John 20. This is uh, John 20, verses 1 to 9, which many of us heard uh, yesterday. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter then came out with the other disciple, and they went toward the tomb. They both ran, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him. And went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying and the napkin which had been on his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know this, the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So there are three stages to this sort of encounter with the risen Christ. The first is an interesting one. It's actually the, the absence of God, the kind of God-shaped hole. Um, so when Mary Magdalene comes, she doesn't say, behold, Christ is risen from the dead. We've, we've got it all figured out. Nor does anyone say, hey, I've been reading the Old Testament. Or they would just say the scriptures at the time. I've been reading the scriptures, 
and I think he's going to rise from the dead. We don't hear anyone saying anything like that. Instead, what does she say? They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they've laid him. In other words, I'm looking for God, and I don't find him. I'm looking for Jesus, and I can't find him. That's something I think that we should take uh, pretty seriously. That we don't always start with the positive uh, evidence. We don't always start uh, with what we know positively, but it may be just that longing in the heart, that area where we say, something's missing in my life. I've got a hole. I'm looking for something and I'm not finding it. That's Mary Magdalene's first encounter on Easter morning. It's the absence. Because she recognizes Jesus should be here but isn't. And so maybe in our own lives, maybe in the lives of the people we're talking to, um, we need to recognize that sort of God void, if you will. Pope Francis talks about this in terms of recognizing the infinite sadness that can only be filled by the infinite love of Christ. And I love this line because I think it really does get to the heart of it. But there is a sense in which effective proclamation of the gospel often requires us first uh, to give the bad news before the good news makes any sense. Like if you've got a, a miracle cancer drug that you discover and you run home and you, you tell everyone about it and they say, what is cancer? We don't know anything about cancer. <laughs> well, okay, I've got good news, but I've got some bad news for you first. You need to know about cancer. That would be, you know, that would be the order of the proclamation. You've got to say, here's the bad news, but here's the good news. Well, here it is too. Like Christ comes and redeems us. He saves us from our sins. But we're trying to tell that to a culture that often says, I don't really take sin seriously. I don't really believe in sin. Or I think other people are sinners, but I'm basically a good person. So we need to be like, no, you're actually dying of the disease of sin. That's the bad news part of the proclamation. This is the God-shaped void. This is the area where we're looking for God and not finding him. So sin is one of the ways that we can talk about that. One of the ways we can show that absence where God is missing. But it's actually not the only one. Another way you can talk about it is simply to ask people um, what they're passionate about, what their goals are, what, what they do to pursue happiness. One of the things Aristotle talks about is that all men seek happiness. Now, we'll want to tease out what do we mean by happiness? Is it just like I want to feel elation or is it something like I want to feel more lasting joy? But the point is that Everything we do, uh, we do because we think it's going to be good for our happiness in some sense of that term. What the God-shaped hole recognizes is that our merely human attempts to do that without God always fall flat. There are a lot of ways you can show this. There are a lot of ways you can proclaim this. And I think uh, one of the best, most effective ways to do it is simply by asking good questions. For example, uh, how long did you spend on Facebook today? Did it make you happy? Do you feel more content? Are you a happier person for it? Are you going to be glad in a week that this is how you spent your time? Or what are you really throwing all of your time and money and energy and effort into? Do you think that'll make you happy in the way you're wanting to be happy? 
are people who've succeeded in the thing you're trying at, whether it's someone who's successful at your job or whether it's someone who has achieved the kind of goals you want in sports or in life or whatever else. Are those people really happy? You ask those kind of questions because it should help the other person, or maybe it even helps you if, if these are things that you fall into yourself, to recognize, oh, all of these things I've been trying to fill, all these areas of this infinite sadness I've been trying to satisfy. There's no amount of booze and money and sex and power and glory and fame and Facebook likes and retweets and shares that can fill that infinite cavern that hole in my heart that tomb is empty <laughs> and it belongs to Christ and it's not going to be filled satisfactorily with anyone other than Christ or with anything other than Christ that's I think uh, the first step and it's, it's something that we need to constantly be reminded of because we can so easily put something or someone in that hole even I think married couples often do this to each other where we should be an image of Christ to one another, but we obviously aren't going to be a replacement for Christ to one another. So that's the first step. The absence of God. The second is the evidence of design. Well, here, this could look like several different things. But this is where you see things, like, for example, that the universe is orderly. So where do we see this in John 20? Well, think about when Peter walks into the tomb. What does he see? He sees the burial closet there. And he sees that uh, the head cloth is rolled up in a separate place. Why does that detail strike him? Well, that detail strikes him, it seems, because it's not what you would do if you were stealing a body. You wouldn't take the time to carefully unwrap the body, fold up the head cloth, and then, you know, put it neatly in a corner. That's a really human kind of thing to do. A wild animal attacking the body is definitely not going to do that. So the ordinary reasons you might expect the tomb to be empty without any kind of supernatural cause, those don't work with the evidence. So here Peter's encountering real evidence of the resurrection and evidence of divine orderliness. Now, if you were to take that analogously, where do we see evidence of divine orderliness in our lives? Where do we see it in creation? Where do we see it in even conscience? All of these things. Well, now we can have those conversations. Okay. So in step one, we realize like mm -hmm. we're looking for something that we're not finding uh, by our own efforts. In step two, we realize like, oh, actually there's good evidence that we're not by ourselves. There's good evidence that things are orderly and that we're not just left to our own devices. Great. This is um, a hint at the resurrection. For Peter, this is interesting. It's enough. Uh, or at least for John. I mean, it seems like for Peter, he seems to come away with some sort of knowledge. John, we certainly know. He went in and says, and he saw and believed. There's an interesting detail here in verse 9. John says, for as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Okay, well, that tells us a few things. Tells us, first of all, that there are scriptures in the Old Testament that foreshadow, that predict, that prophesy the resurrection. And we know that elsewhere, too. When Jesus is on the road to Emmaus, 
he opens up the scriptures to these disciples to show uh, how it points to the resurrection. But another thing it tells us is that scripture alone isn't enough to get anybody there. Like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, Peter and John, no one is reading these Old Testament scriptures and saying, oh, therefore, three days afterwards, there's going to be a resurrection. No one's coming to these conclusions on their own. They need the scriptures opened up to them. They need them interpreted. And it's not enough to have uh, scripture alone. And so quite frankly, I mean, right here, uh, without getting too much into the whole Catholic Protestant issue is Sola Scriptura. John and Peter are perfectly content believing in the resurrection, despite their belief at the time that the resurrection isn't in scripture. Here's why that matters. Frequently, Protestant Christians will uh, present the gospel as just, here's the scriptures, here's the Bible, here's what it says, and try from scripture alone uh, to sort of make the case. That's not necessarily bad. I mean, certainly in the proclamations of, scripture, of the resurrection throughout Acts, for example, there are several instances in which, uh, for example, Peter on Pentecost He's going to go through and look at, well, here's what was prophesied. And he shows how it's fulfilled. But nevertheless, we shouldn't forget that this isn't the way that actually converted uh, the earliest witnesses to the resurrection. Uh, the earliest believers in it were not converted in this way. And so we should remember that at the very least, even though the scriptural approach might work, it is not a one-size-fits-all solution. It's not the only way. Uh, to proclaim the resurrection of Christ. On a doctrinal question, there is this belief, Sola Scriptura, I just alluded to it, that says all doctrines must come uh, from Scripture. Now, the irony there has been mentioned before by me and others, that doctrine doesn't come from Scripture. So it's self-refuting. But it's also very clear that this is not something the apostles believed in. Because John tells us pretty explicitly right here in John 20, verse 9, they didn't think scripture preached the resurrection, but they still believed in the resurrection. Now, the fact that they were wrong, the fact that scripture did in fact proclaim the resurrection doesn't matter because it shows that they didn't think that was an important detail at the time. They didn't see the evidence in the empty tomb and say, we need to go home, we need to pick up some copies of the Bible and find out whether or not the resurrection is in here. That's not one of the steps that they take. So all that's to say, scripture is great. Scriptural res like prophecies of the resurrection are fantastic. Scripture does, in fact, proclaim the resurrection. But this whole idea that it has to be from scripture alone is contrary to scripture, contrary to the lived experience of Peter and John, Mary Magdalene and the others. And, and so don't, don't feel yourself confined to that, because that's just a, a Protestant kind of myth that, that isn't coming from the Bible itself. So there's a third element of this kind of encounter. You may be thinking, well, wait, <laughs> Peter and John have already been in the tomb. They've gone home. John at least believes we don't really know exactly with Peter. But there's one more person in the story that we haven't really talked about, which is Mary Magdalene. And she shows the third, and I think the highest way of kind of coming into this knowledge of the resurrection. And that is a lived encounter with Christ. 
So verses 11 to 16, we see that while they went home, she stays outside the tomb weeping. She doesn't come away with an intellectual knowledge that the resurrection seems to have happened. She doesn't seem to have faith in the resurrection at this point. What she does have is a heart anxiously seeking Christ. So she sees two men who turn out to be angels. And they say to her, woman, why are you weeping? She says to them, they've taken my Lord. I don't know where they laid him. She then turns around and sees a man who she believes is a gardener who says, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? She says, sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you laid him and I will take him. And Jesus reveals that it's him, not a gardener, by saying, Mary. She turns and says to him in Hebrew, Rabuni, which means teacher. Now, there are a few things, I think, that are worth drawing out of this. The first is that there's something very consoling about the fact that a heart-seeking Christ is something he responds to. He doesn't punish her for not having figured out the resurrection at this point, doesn't punish her for not putting the pieces together as quickly as John does. The fact that she keeps looking is something he, in fact, rewards. And he rewards with this very personal encounter. Second, the highest and the best way we can know Christ is through the kind of knowledge that comes through him calling us by name. There's a running theme of this throughout the Gospels. So, for example, in Matthew 16, we regularly talk about this in the context of the papacy. But think about it from this perspective. Jesus says to the apostles, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's right. Well, how does Jesus respond to him? He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. Now, Peter wasn't the name that he was born with. It wasn't a name he was known by. It's a new identity revealed to him uh, in Christ. We see this theme in Revelation as well, when it says that to the one who triumphs, to the one who overcomes, I will give to him a hidden manna, and a white stone containing a name on it known only to God. It's that idea that God calls each and every one of us by name, that there is an intensely personal aspect to the resurrection. And this encounter with the resurrected Christ is a personal and uh, really irreplaceable, non-interchangeable sort of encounter with Christ. That is an important part of the proclamation, a part that we often don't think about. It's easy to say, well, all humans seek happiness. It's easy to say none of the human ways we've tried to achieve that happiness do it for us. It's easy to say the universe is orderly and the resurrection makes the most historical sense. And that is all a very orderly, very clear proclamation. All of that is good. All of that's important. I I think those are all things worth proclaiming. Just as I think the scriptural arguments that Peter and John didn't know at the time are worth proclaiming as well. But the most important part of the proclamation is that Christ has called you by name. The most important part of the resurrection 
is its impact in your life in that sense. That if Christ was raised and you didn't persevere in that, then your belief is in vain. St. Paul talks about that also in 1 Corinthians 15. So if you're not enduring in that, if you're not being transformed by it, then the resurrection becomes a, an unimportant historical event as it relates to you. But if you let Christ call you by name and if you respond as Mary responded to him, it's a total change. It's a total conversion of life. And so I think that opens up um, a lot of really exciting possibilities for evangelization. So regularly people will talk about how evangelization is really hard because they don't feel like they have all the answers. You don't need to have all the answers. What you need to do is be transformed by Christ and be able to talk about that. If someone were to ask you what you saw in your spouse that made you love them, hopefully you could give a good answer to that. If someone asked you why your favorite restaurant was your favorite restaurant, you could point to a set of reasons why it really appeals to you. Would you know every ingredient that they use? Would you be able to answer every possible question? Of course not. And no one would ever expect you to. But you wouldn't wait to tell your friends until you were able to meet that kind of criterion, because you never could. If you said, I have a great restaurant, but I don't have the menu memorized, and so I can't tell you about it, your friends would rightly look at you like you're insane. And so it is here. If you've got an encounter with the resurrected Christ, you should want to share that so much more than you want to share a restaurant recommendation. So much more even uh, than you want to tell people why you love the person you love. This is the most meaningful, most significant, and in a striking way, the most intimate uh, moment of life is this encounter with the resurrected Christ. It is utterly life-changing. And you don't have to know every theological answer. You don't have to know every historical fact. You don't have to remember every chapter and verse to be able to proclaim that. That's why it's important that John, Peter, and Mary Magdalene, they don't come to faith through just examining the scriptures in that way. They don't come to it through sitting in a room pondering all the facts or carefully looking at the orderliness of the universe. Instead, ultimately, they see order in their lives. They see uh, the absence of God in their life. And eventually, they have an encounter with Jesus Christ in their lives. So I hope this is helpful to you. I hope that this gives you the boldness this Easter to proclaim Jesus. Or if you're at a different place, maybe it gives you the encouragement to go looking, to go to the tomb, to look for that order, to look for the happiness you've been missing and haven't been finding, to look for the love that calls you by name. Happy Easter from both Chloe and me. This Easter uh, season, we're going to be talking about these encounters, these personal experiences of transformation in Christ through a series of conversion stories. I hope that you'll tune in next week and the week after that and the week after that and so on, because uh, we have a lot of exciting guests lined up. Let's close now in a prayer. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And then the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Happy Easter. Hallelujah. The Catholic Podcast is an initiative of the Holy Family School of Faith Institute. To find out more or to see how you can contribute to our mission, check out www.schooloffaith.com.